joy, peace, tranquility, vibrancy, and wellness. Isn't this what you want instead of constant stress? That's what host Rochelle Lawson is going to help you with on Blissful Living. There are many ways to reduce stress, some you may not even know about. Doesn't a little peace and tranquility sound like just what you've been looking for? Relax for a few minutes with Rochelle. She's the queen of feeling fabulous. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blissful Living. I am Rochelle Lawson, the queen of feeling fabulous, and I am your host for today's show. And today's guest is going to share with us um, something that we haven't discussed in a while on the show, and it has to do with the complexity of eating, the myths, the fads, and the facts behind what we eat, how we eat, and basically why we eat. I want to tell you a little bit about the guest. The guest is named Dr. Charlie Seltzer, and he is he is the only physician in the country. Wait, hold on. Let me let me go back. Dr. Charlie Seltzer is the only physician in the country board certified in obesity medicine and certified by the American College of Sports Medicine as a clinical exercise specialist. He is also board certified in internal medicine. His practice, Limitless Longevity, helps people live longer, healthier lives through better nutrition, exercise, and lifestyle. He teaches his patients the same methods he used successfully to, to lose and keep off over 70 pounds successfully. Um, he received his undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania and his Doctor of Medicine degree from Jefferson Medical College. He completed his residency in internal medicine, where he was voted Outstanding Senior Resident of the Year. And the reason why it's so nice to have him as a guest on today's show is because a lot of us suffer with the madness behind the world of eating, and it's really nice to have an expert on the show that can actually help you figure out what is factual, what is missed, what will work and will not work, and how you can success be successful with maintaining and managing your weight. So I would like to take this moment to welcome Dr. Charlie Seltzer to Blissful Living. How are you? I'm great. I appreciate you having me on the show. Well, we appreciate you coming on to uh, the to the show and taking time out of your busy day to talk to us about this really um, fascinating area. You know, as I go out each day, I'm so cognizant of weight. You know, it goes with being a nurse, I guess, being in the medical profession, but I'm so cognizant of it. But what I've noticed lately is that with all this information we have out there about what we should eat and how we should eat healthier and exercise and take really good care of our body, it seems that our American public, our American society is doing a very poor job of that um, because I see more and more and more obese people, and I don't mean slightly obese or just thick. I mean grossly or morbidly obese, you know, walking around and they just seem to be okay with it. And so I want to ask you with regards to that specific thing that I just talked about, 
What do you think is going on with our society today when it comes to weight management? Well, I think it's a combination of multiple things. First off, the message that people are getting, um, which is to eat more healthfully and exercise, is not lost on people. Everybody knows that. Getting somebody to do it is an entirely different story. So there are a million diet books out there, and they're all going to essentially say the same thing, which is eat healthier, whether it's the Mediterranean diet or the sugar busters or whatever it is. They're all preaching essentially the same thing. Getting somebody to do that in a real-life atmosphere is much more difficult. When you add that to the fact that there's fast food restaurants in every corner and more unhealthy choices available than ever before, it becomes a losing battle. That and whereas 30 years ago, in order to pick up food if you wanted to go out. You have to go out and get it. Now it's delivered. Uh, Groceries are delivered. Um, The activities of daily living have been shrunken tremendously, so people are not only eating more, but they're expending less energy. And that's a dangerous combination. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, 30 years ago, I remember seeing uh, children, you know, outside playing. And uh, I knew when I was growing up, you know, we spent the majority as much time as possible outside doing something, running around, playing. You know, you didn't really see that many overweight kids, especially not the way they are today. And um, those that were slightly, as they call, I like to use the loving term, thick, those that were thick, they may have been thick, but they weren't like these kids are today. And so... It just seems like this this uh, lack of activity and lack of mobility and lack of, you know, getting out and doing stuff that we used to do back then has really diminished and has contributed, you know, to this weight problem. But um, where do you put the responsibility on a person, um, you know, to, to, you know, you look in the mirror, you see you've gained 20, 30, 5, 10, whatever pounds. When does that person take you know have to take responsibility for the actions or lack of actions that they're taking with regards to maintaining their weight well i think ultimately it's the own person's responsibility no matter what and i hesitate to blame society for individuals problems but it's certainly a losing battle and i think ultimately um not saying I'm blaming parents, but parents who don't adhere to a healthy lifestyle or are obese have a much higher chance of having children who are obese. And most children's first exposure to food and food experiences is through the parents. And when parents are overweight and unhealthy, it sets up an example for the children to be unhealthy. And then it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then you add that to the societal influence of of making people overweight. We're basically, we live in an obesogenic society, meaning that everything about our society is just geared toward making people overweight with the food, with the lack of activity. I think that ultimately it has to fall on the individual. Uh, and there's, there's so much, you said a lot of information out there. Unfortunately, there's more misinformation than there is information. And even the most well-intentioned people will often get on the wrong plan or the wrong sort of program and they'll end up worse off in the long run than they were when they started. Yeah, I'm, and we're definitely going to touch on, upon the misinformation. And I, I do, I I know you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, had a neighbor um, that quit her job to stay home and you know raise her kids and be the stay-at-home mom. And here I am, you know, this die-hard, you know, do as much as I possibly can and still take really good care of my kids. But what I found was really interesting was I was raised in a family where. Um, 
the meals were cooked at home. I mean, we went out to dinner, don't get me wrong, but the majority of our meals were, you know, home-cooked meals. My mom cooked or my dad cooked, and we had a well-balanced meal every day. And so I did that for my kids. I just, it just, you know, my kids and my husband, it just didn't make, it just, it was just a natural thing for me to do, right? I had been cooking since I was 11 years old. So it just was natural for me to, you know, prepare three square meals. I knew what was going into the food. I know what my kids were eating. I was making sure they were getting their vitamins through the food they ate, such as, you know, the, you know, the well-balanced diet, so to speak. But this mom that lived next door to me, here she was a stay-at-home mom, and I'm the one, you know, working multiple jobs and doing all kind of stuff. That lady would take her kids, to the fast food restaurants every single day. Now, I'm fast-forwarding a few years now, say 10, 12 years. Here we are. My kids are grown, of course, but they're, you know, fit and healthy, no weight issues. Her kids, she's got one that's obese, and I would say morbidly obese. The mom is now obese, and the older daughter is somewhat headed that way. And I, I would have to say that, yeah, the responsibility does lie upon the parents to provide the good meals, but a lot of times they get stuck in the rut of the easiest thing to do, which is to go grab a fast food meal, and they're not always nutritious. And I want to, and the reason why I talk about that is because I know that there are a lot of people out there that experience that or are doing that or seeing that, and they say, what do you say to these people that say, well, I go eat the fast food, but I'm choosing their healthy meals? What do you say to that? I would say I think it's admirable that they're trying to make healthy choices, and there are certainly ways you can get you can navigate a fast food menu and still make healthy choices. I practice medicine in the real world where people have real stressors and real schedule issues, and I think that there's not necessarily anything wrong with eating fast food from time to time, um, or even regularly should you make the right choices. Now, one of the benefits we have now that we didn't have before is an abundance of healthy fast food options out there, which were not there before. Of course, the portions were much smaller back then, so you have to weigh this all with a grain of salt. But there are fast food restaurants where you can get healthy choices. The problem is very, very few people make them. And even people who think that they are making healthy choices are oftentimes mistaken. Whereas other things which someone would think would not be healthy are actually a healthier option than, say, a Caesar salad, which a lot of people think is healthy, but people who know about nutrition know that they're saddled with fat calories. Yeah. Um, thank you for for touching on that because um there is there is a lot more uh healthier choices available at those fast food restaurants. I personally do not eat fast food. I haven't eaten it in a long time. Um but there are I you know have noticed a lot more healthier ch- choices, but then I've also noticed that the as the healthier choices have become available to us, the waistlines of our average American citizen has increased dramatically. So right. I, I, I completely you know, agree. It's like, it's like this catch-22 thing. It's like you guys have these, you know, I'm not going to beat you down because you love fast food, but you have these health, healthy options, you know, choose those sometimes, you know, instead of the double cheeseburger with the extra layer of bacon and the, you know, the onion rings that's, you know, deep fried in fat. And, you right. know, it's like choose the healthier choice. That's why and they're think, available. 
the people have the mistaken idea that it has to be an all-or-nothing type of proposition, meaning if they're not going to get the grilled chicken sandwich, then they might as well get a double bacon cheeseburger with a large order of French fries. And there's certainly some room in the middle. <laughs> and I, I think that small changes are a good idea, meaning if you're used to getting a bacon double cheeseburger, just get a cheeseburger or a double cheeseburger even. It's not an ideal choice, but it's still a better choice than eating the bacon double cheeseburger. And over time, a series of those small changes will result in significant weight loss. They might not see that 10 pounds in 10 days, which a lot of fad gimmicky diets will advertise, but that's not a realistic way to lose weight. So small changes done over the long term with minor things like that, switching from a medium French fries to a small French fries, things that are not going to seem overwhelming to an individual while they're doing it will give them the best chance of success. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, do you have anything to say about uh, the supersize? <laughs> I, I think I don't know what the data is going to show, but I, I would think that people who are used to eating supersized meals, if it's not accessible to them, they'll just order extra food. I think oh. it's a. I don't know though. I think it's a good idea not to offer supersized um, menu items, but that's assuming that people aren't just going to order an extra small fries on the side to make up uh, anything they might have missed from the supersize. That's true. Now I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think before they came out with this super size thing. You know, you just went to McDonald's. You got your cheeseburger, French fries. You know, it was basically you got your little happy meal, and that was good to go and was satisfying to people. And again, we didn't have the weight obesity epidemic like we do now. And then they started, you know, increasing. Well, you, would you like to supersize it? So then you supersize it. Now they actually have three options for supersizing. You can get a small, medium, or large supersize. And it's just like, you know, if people love to eat and they think they're getting a bargain, of course they're going to go for the extra, you know, the extra large supersize because they're, you know, they're thinking they're getting more food, more bang for their buck, so to speak. But in actuality, they're just doing more damage to their health and well-being by doing that. And, of course, it is, it's exhibiting upon their weight, their waistline. I um I want to talk, you know, because we're, we're into this, this whole eating, and I don't want to, you know, bash the people that are, you know, struggling with their, to manage their weight. But, um, you know, some of the fad stuff out there with regards to diets, and I, and I really like to tackle this one because there is a lot of misinformation out there, and you're an expert in this arena, and I like to, you know, have the audience listen to experts and not people that, really don't know what they're doing or what they're saying or the science behind it. But what would you say with regards to some of these things that people try, such as the fat diets, um, the juicing fast or the, yeah, I'm, you know, you know the various fat diets. I think mm -hmm. you've got the Southeast diet, you've got the Atkins diet, you know, all these different diets. And, of course, when people get on them, they lose weight, they look great, but it's not something that they can sustain. What would you say or what did you have to say about those, those diets? Well, let's, let's just tackle a couple of the most popular ones. So HCG is now all the rage. Um, there are unscrupulous doctors who will give HCG injections to people. There are HCG drops. There's HCG diets. Um, stands for human chorionic gonadotropin, which is the pregnancy hormone that's released from the placenta when a woman is pregnant. And the argument behind giving it is that it, quote, tricks the body, end quote, into giving up stored body fat. What they don't advertise is that HCG injection-type diets are always accompanied by a 500-calorie-a-day nutrition plan. 
um, and an encouragement not to exercise excessively. The promises of 30 pounds in 30 days might very well be real. It's mostly water weight and muscle because when you're starving yourself, obviously you're going to lose weight. Um, but it is not the, or the, uh, the fat mass that is the ideal uh, loss when you're losing weight. I mean, there's a difference between losing fat and losing weight. We want to lose fat, um, not weight if it is water and, um, and muscle tissue. The other thing that people don't realize when they're doing these types of starvation diets is that there will be a drastic metabolic slowdown accompanied with a drastic caloric reduction. What happens is when the people go back to eating normally after being on 500 calories a day, what might have been a maintenance calorie number for them before is now going to be well over their metabolic rate and is going to cause them to gain weight, even eating what mm -hmm. they had eaten before they started the diet. So they're often mm -hmm. worse off afterward than they are before, which forces them to go back on a crazy diet with severe caloric restriction, which just perpetuates the cycle. There's no evidence that HCG works any better than placebo. And I would recommend that anybody who's considering that uh, diet plan really, really take a step back before they do it and run from any doctor who prescribes it like the plague because there is no evidence that it works. Oh, thank you for sharing that because, yeah, I, I have a friend who is, a believe it or not, a, a LVN, a licensed vocational nurse here in California. And so, you know, she you would think she would know better. And she started working out, and uh, she mentioned these shots to me. And I'm like, girl, you know, there's, no, there's nothing that beats, beats just good old-fashioned, you know, cutting what you take in and stepping up your exercise. You will lose weight. I mean, you know, I'm like, just come to the gym with me. I'll work you out. You'll lose weight, right? But she got into the the belief that these shots were going to help her and so on and so forth, and really they didn't. I mean, it helped, like you said, for a little bit, but then she had the rebound effect of where it didn't help. And she's like, well, I'm doing this stuff, and it should be working. And I'm like, it's not going to work because it's not something that's meant to work for you. It's not sustainable. It's not reality. It's not realistic for your body. And so, of course, she lost the weight, but then she gained it back. So then it was like, well, now I'm going to try the, you know, the low-carb diet. And I keep telling her, you know, it's like you're trying all this stuff, but you can only sustain it for a little bit of time, and then your body begins to, like you said, kind of adjust everything down, and then you, you, you start losing the weight. I mean, you start gaining the weight back. Um, so I thank you for addressing that. Have you heard about – oh, doggone it. And it just popped up in my head, so it's, it's really off the cuff – there's this fruit es extract. Oh, oh man. Garcinia. Um, yes, that's another one I've been hearing about mm -hmm. lately. Um, can you touch upon that for me, please? Yeah, it contains a compound called hydroxycitric acid, which has some evidence behind its ability to suppress appetite. So when used in combination with a sound nutrition plan and a good exercise plan, there's certainly some evidence that it may help. What it's not is the magic pill that the people who sell it make it out to be. And unfortunately, there are no magic pills. Um, same thing with a number of other compounds like green tea extract, um, which is very, mm -hmm. very effective in helping boost basal metabolic rate as well as providing good antioxidant coverage for the body. But it's not going to be a magic bullet. The nutrition and the exercise programs have to be in place before those things are going to work. And I tell people, my patients all the time, I say, look, let's look at this from a common sense standpoint. If there was a pill that could make you thin without any other changes, then the insurance companies would be giving it to everybody because it would cut their costs by, I don't know, 80%. Mm -hmm. 
Right. The fact that you have to go on a website, um, a special website, to order this stuff when the government <laughs> would probably be giving it out if it was an effective supplement, uh, it, that, that tells me everything I need to know. Then there are uh, like the, the yeah, I'm sure you've heard of Sensa, which is the stuff you sprinkle over your, uh, yes, your food, which is yes, supposed I'm to decrease. Okay. Yes. That's about as effective as trying to fix your computer by sprinkling glitter over the keyboard. Um, <laughs> there's no peer-reviewed literature that that stuff works, and of course it does. You have to use common sense. It doesn't work. If it worked, everybody would be doing it. Major pharmaceutical companies would be giving it out. Or not pharmaceutical companies, I apologize. Uh, Insurance companies would be giving it out. The government would probably be giving it out. And it doesn't work. They will cite a study that they did, um, that the makers of Sensa did, that said that they lost, people who used it lost a significantly um, greater amount of weight than people who didn't. problem is that study is not peer-reviewed, and I don't believe they're releasing it to anybody. So it's a secret study. Right. It says that people, a secret study funded by the company who did it with no independent literature to back it up, and it goes against most people's common sense. The problem is everybody wants a quick fix. Everybody wants an easy fix. And people have gotten it into their head over time that there's a quick fix for weight, whereas people are a lot more accepting of the idea that there's no quick fix for, say, I don't know, if you want to learn computer programming. You know you're not going to be able to take a pill and learn computer programming overnight. Same way you're not going to be able to maintain a healthy weight and live a healthy lifestyle overnight by taking a pill. Thank you for sharing that because I, I, oh, my gosh, I I get bombarded. And my mom is, is the worst. You would think she would not be with, you know, a daughter as a, a healthcare professional, and but she's the worst. She will see something on TV. She told me about that stuff. You just sprinkle a little bit on your food, and you know. And I'm like, Mom, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Or you know, I hear the people that say, Well, I'll just get liposuction and suck off the fat. And I'm like, Well, you'll just gain it back because. Right really starts in the mind, your mindset. You have to change the way you think and your relationship to food and all that. If you don't change that, yeah, you'll look great, but you'll gain the weight back. Just like the people we see that had that gastric bypass, mm-hmm. they look great. They lose a ton of weight, and then you see them a couple of years later, and you're like, what happened? Right? I, I treat a number of patients who've had the lap band procedure, mm-hmm. which, which we know from a data standpoint is no more effective in the long term than not having the lap band for weight loss. And mm-hmm. they come in, they say they lost some weight, but then eventually that little pouch of stomach will expand as they eat progressively more food as the old habits come back. And we see it all the time, and it's unfortunate um, because then they're stuck with absorption problems or scar tissue over the band, uh, and they're usually worse off uh, in the long run. Now, that's not everybody. There are some people who get gastric bypass and get the lap band who do very well. And if someone's considering a surgery like that, I strongly recommend they look at the Ruin Y procedure, which is the traditional gastric bypass surgery, versus the lap band, because at least there is good long-term data on the gastric bypass surgery as providing lasting weight loss where there is none for the lap band. Now, let me ask you with regards to that, what would you say the percentage of people that you've seen that have had the lap band uh, surgery, what would you say the percentage of them have, have quote-unquote, gained weight back? Um, in, well, in my practice, I guess, because I, I see mostly people who want to lose weight 100%, but I'd say in the general population, well over three mm-hmm. quarters. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Just, a, so, that's just an off-the-cuff estimate. I'm not, I can't say that for sure, but that's, that's probably about right, at least, at least three quarters. 
Yeah, I I mean, just based on what I've seen and the people I know and, you know, that have had uh, both the gastric and the lap band, I would, uh, I would have to agree with you. Now, I want to shift a little bit because I know you mentioned a little bit about supplements and um, and let's just go back to that just for a minute. I want to ask you this really direct question. Do supplements really help people to lose weight? The answer I'm going to say is yes, they do. They do not make people lose weight, but they can help people lose a little bit more than they would without them. And are there any, um, in particular, any supplements that you recommend just, you know, to, you know, without, you know, doing your, you know, your physical assessment of the patient or whatever? Is there anything that you would just generically recommend that people could grasp and say, hey, let me try that, doctor? I do. I think that most people don't eat enough protein, and we know that whey protein has a number of physiologic benefits, including appetite suppression, an ability to increase lean muscle mass, an ability to regulate insulin levels, which will then in turn decrease risk for diabetes, Um, increase muscle protein synthesis, and the more muscle one is carrying, the less chance they have of getting diabetes um, or breaking a hip for that matter. Um, And it's a nice way to supplement. We look at the volumes of research that show that supplementing with whey protein after a workout uh, is helpful in a number of ways. It becomes a no-brainer, providing somebody's kidneys are healthy. That's why I recommend everybody, before they try any sort of supplementation program, go to their doctor and get the kidneys evaluated. If they can, um, using a microalbumin to creatinine ratio or a urine for microalbumin, which can detect kidney issues well before uh, a kidney problem might show up on a traditional blood test. Okay, so um, you guys out there listening, he did get a little bit technical. Me as a as a healthcare professional, I totally understand what he's talking about. But what he's specifically referring to is your kidney function and how well your kidneys function. And what he's suggesting to you guys is that before you try any of these supplements, just go to go to your doctor and have um, a test performed where they can your physician can get the results back and measure the exact function of your kidneys so that you don't tax your kidneys if they are having little problems, you know, um, filtering what they're supposed to do within your body. Um, So it's something simple you can do, Um, just a urine, you know, you you, you urinate in a cup, um, and they can really test that and see how well your kidneys are functioning because you don't want to start something like this or take a supplement if your kidneys are not really functioning to their ultimate the best that they can because uh, it can cause other problems within your body. So I'm glad you mentioned whey protein because I am an advocate and I work out and I do take my whey protein and I love it. But before I discovered it, um, I you know, I just would work out and, and just, you know, have kind of like this drain. I, I typically am the type of person that when I do a lot of cardio, the weight will just fluff off and then I, um, I'm naturally thin, so I really look really thin. But the whey protein has helped me to sustain that, that muscle mass that I'm seeking, of course, and uh, it's really nice. It, it really goes through my system really well and my body is able to um, really process it and handle it. And I love how it keeps my, my blood sugar levels even without the peaks and valleys that, you know, other things can can sometimes cause. So thank you for mentioning the whey protein because I know there are a couple people out there um, that are taking protein shakes and and some of them have whey protein um, and some of them don't. So um, 
if you are out there doing that, you might want to switch to something with whey protein. It's going to be way better. Right. <laughs> and and a, whey, a whey isolate or a very finely filtered whey will not have any lactose or gluten in it. So for people who are lactose sensitive or gluten uh, intolerant um, can get away with using whey protein most of the time. Yep, that's probably why it works so good for me because I am lactose intolerant and it's just, until I came across it, you know, I tried a couple other things, and until I came across this particular um, um, protein shake that I make for myself, um, I was having significant issues, you know. But now I feel fabulous, and um, and I have that sustained energy because my blood sugar levels remain balanced, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the day. Now, um, what is the best way to lose weight, would you say? The best and most efficient way to lose it and sustain it. Okay. The best way to lose weight and sustain it is to find a particular plan that you can adhere to for the rest of your life, which creates a slight calorie deficit while you're losing weight. So to give somebody a printed out plan before meeting them is akin to me giving them my reading glasses and saying, here, read from these. Um, (laughs) It's... It's necessary for each person to figure out what they need to do to lose weight. And that's why I encourage people when they're trying to lose weight not to eliminate anything they plan on doing once they get to their goal weight. For example, if somebody is a regular wine drinker, the worst idea I've ever heard would be for them to try to stop drinking wine altogether until they hit their goal weight and then resume drinking it in some sort of moderate fashion, which works really nicely on paper but does not work in the real world. The trick there is to figure out a way to lose weight such that you're doing everything you plan on doing for the rest of your life. That way, when you hit your goal weight, nothing has to change. So if somebody comes into my office and they weigh 250 pounds and they want to weigh 150 pounds, I say, let's start making choices and lifestyle modifications so that once you hit 150 pounds, you don't have to change anything. Versus, okay, I'm at my goal now. Now let me try to reintroduce the 5,000 things that I've eliminated for the past three months and try to do it in such a way that I'm going to be able to maintain my weight loss. It's not going to work. So as a practical matter, it's a good idea to try to figure out how many calories a day your body needs. And I have people do this very simply by weighing themselves in the morning on what I call day zero, tracking everything they eat for the week, weighing themselves again at the end of the week in the morning, and looking at the average number of calories they've eaten throughout the um, average number of calories per day throughout the week. And if their weight at the beginning of the week and at the end of the week is the same, then that's the number that they need to maintain their weight, and eating slightly less than that will cause a weight loss. If they've lost weight, then they know that their basal caloric requirements are slightly more, and they can probably just continue doing what they did for that week. Similarly, if their weight is higher at the end of the week, they know that they're eating more than what they require. And that's just a really easy way to do it. And then making slight dietary modifications in order to slowly bring that number down um, is the best way to lose weight and sustain it because you shouldn't be making any major radical changes. Perfect. Um, I, I love that. It, you know, I want to touch upon um, one thing that I recently heard from a physician um, actually, I have a couple of physician friends, but this one, he said that um, the the fact of the matter, the best or the solution to losing weight is to eat 500 calories less than what your body requires or what you um, what you're taking in on a normal basis. And I was I I kind of like had to like you know I guess a question mark came on my forehead. He didn't and he was actually speaking to a group of people didn't elaborate on it any more or any less, and no one kind of chimed in or asked any questions at that point. But I thought 
is that something that is really true? And because you're the expert in this field, um, is that something that's really true? Or is that, again, setting up people for, okay, you'll have the weight loss, but then, um, you know, once you've got to your your ideal weight or whatever, um, you'll go back because you won't, you'll you'll be thinking, oh, okay, the, you know, the, it's just the 500 calorie thing. Is that is that something true or well, I, I think myth? it's partially true, yeah, depending on how people do it. If somebody were to eliminate 500 calories a day by switching, say, from whole milk to skim milk or from cream in their coffee to black coffee, that's something they could sustain for the rest of their lives. So that should lead right. to sustainable weight loss. If somebody is going to eliminate 500 calories a day by not eating two Snickers bars until they get to their weight goal and then resume eating the two Snickers bars, that weight will come right back. And most of the time when people try to do that, it's not just two Snickers bars they go back to when they hit their goal weight. It's four or five. <laughs> so it is, in, in a sense, it is, it is simple math, and it's that if you eat fewer calories than you burn, you will lose weight. The complicating issue is that metabolism varies with the amount of calories you eat. So the less calories you eat, the slower your metabolism becomes. So creating a slight calorie deficit with a more realistic approach to weight loss, which would be one to two pounds per week, is a lot better goal than to try to lose five or six pounds a week, um, a significant amount of which will come from lean muscle and water, which you don't want, which will also slow your metabolism down more and just set you up for failure in the long run. Mm. Okay. So basically, the, the, it seems like the real goal is to uh, do something that do something that's no should that's not so drastic or dramatic that um, once you get your ideal weight that you won't revert back to it, such as eating the, you know, going from eating two Snickers to none and then, you know, rebounding, I've lost my weight, now I'm back to eating five Snickers or, you know, piling on the the sugars um, Mm -hmm. after you eat dinner until you, you you know, you go to bed, so to speak. Um, Hold hold that thought. I just, I, this is time in the show that we like to acknowledge one of our sponsors in the show. And the sponsor today that we're acknowledging is the modern essential oil company called 21 Drops. And 21 Drops believes that the essential oils that we extract from the various parts of the plants, the fruits, the leaves, the woods, the seeds, and the flowers are beneficial to the mind, body, and spirit. It is, in fact, that these highly concentrated molecules that are extracted from the plant um, contain critical parts of the plant's immune system and their survival mechanisms. And why that's important to us is because man and plants have evolved alongside each other with the same chemistry for many years. And once these oils are either inhaled or absorbed into the bloodstream, they interact with the body, creating balance and wellness. And they believe that, my friends, is the principle um, based on the science of aromatherapy. Now, at 21 Drops, they sourced all of their organic uh, excuse me. They source all of their oils from organically grown herbs and plants that are collected from all over the globe, and the resulting distilled oils are in their purest, most effective form. The select oils that they utilize or they extract from their distillers are, are used to create the most effective, customized solutions to each. Um, problem that someone may experience, say, anything from headache to heartache. Now, 21 Drops captures the incredible power of the pureness of the essential oils for their therapeutic purposes, and they believe by doing this that they're empowering their friends and customers to feel better and be better. Now, if you're out there and you want to dibble and dabble in a little bit of aromatherapy or you want to get 
a specific essential oil or you want a customized blend or you just, you know, want to just check it out, I suggest you go to their website, which is 21drops.com. That's the number 21, the word drops with an S, dot com. Check them out, and I guarantee that you'll find something that's organic, wildcraftic, and really yummy for your mind, body, and spirit. Now, back to Dr. Charlie Seltzer, and there's this this phenomenal thing that we're talking about, which is uh, the myths, fads, and facts behind um, managing and maintaining weight successfully. You know, um, I've had people say that, um, you know, skipping a, skipping breakfast is good, or for that matter, skipping a meal is good. It's going to increase your metabolism. I mean, I've heard all kind of crazy things, but I would like for you to address the issue with regards to this. Is it really necessary to eat a breakfast, and, and or rather, how important is it to eat breakfast in the morning? So everything deals with probability. So first off, the myth that breakfast jumpstarts your metabolism is just that. There is no evidence that eating breakfast causes any sort of metabolic increase. Similarly, there's no evidence that says that eating every two or three hours will increase your metabolism. That being said, most people who maintain a healthy weight eat breakfast, and that's not because breakfast increases the metabolism, but it's because when you eat breakfast, specifically one with protein and fat as well as some carbohydrates, you're less likely to overeat throughout the day. So again, it comes back to an issue of calorie balance. So while the National Weight Control Registry participants, which is a group of people who have kept off and um, or have lost and kept off a significant amount of weight for more than two years, um, we find that most of them eat breakfast, but not all of them. So again, it comes down to what works for you. If you're the kind of person that doesn't like breakfast and when you force feed yourself breakfast, you end up eating the same amount over the rest of the day anyway, then it might maybe be a good idea not to eat breakfast. And there is a school of nutrition called intermittent fasting where people don't eat breakfast and they use it with a certain amount of success. Uh, The issue is that the people who are successful always monitor their total caloric intake. So breakfast is important in the sense that you're more likely to maintain a healthy weight if you eat breakfast than if you don't, but there's no rule that says you have to eat it. There's a misnomer that, um, you know, that you you need to eat breakfast because you've been sleeping um, for six, seven, eight hours, and, um, you know, you, your body wakes up and it's hungry, it's been fasting, so you need to feed it nutrition. However, for people like me, um, this is the funniest thing. Um, I'm not really a breakfast person. And I find that when I eat breakfast, I tend to eat more. It, it, it's just the weirdest thing, but I tend to eat more during the day. Now, I'm always really conscious of what I eat, what I put in my body, um, and how much I eat. But I just noticed that. And then on the days that, I don't eat breakfast. I mean, everything flows. So I'm glad you addressed that because there are some diehard people that say you must eat breakfast. You must. You must have something. And um, you're saying that that's not really necessarily true. Right. Be wary of anybody who says you must do anything. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, for sure. So now let's talk a little bit about, you know, what most people know they need to do, but they choose not to do it for whatever reason. And, um, oh, you know what? I want to go back into the I – I want to backtrack just a little bit with regards to the food. Mm-hmm. 
what do you say about all this information that is coming out about the food that we have available to us from the, the, the GMO food to the processed food? Can you touch upon that? Because that's a big one that I'm hearing now, you know, all the GMOs and, you know, the, the issues with the processed food that seem to be what most people reach for first. Can you just touch a little bit on that? Well, we know that people who eat more processed foods are more likely to be overweight. And it's also a lot easier to overeat from a caloric standpoint eating processed foods than it is from natural foods. Anyone who's eaten a bag of potato chips know how easy that goes down versus eating two pounds of broccoli. So I recommend that all other things being equal, always choose the unprocessed route. Now, the GMO thing is really interesting, and I just don't know right now what the long-term data is going to be on that. Mm-hmm. meaning are genetically modified organism consumption going to cause cancer in 10 or 15 years? I don't know. I hope not, but I wouldn't be overly surprised. Right. I think that as a general rule, it's better to eat non-GMO types of things, but I would rather see somebody maintain a healthy weight eating some processed foods and eating GMO foods rather than strictly being completely organic and weighing 400 pounds because the risk of premature death from heart disease and diabetes uh, is a lot greater, at least in my eyes, in getting a weird kind of cancer or something from eating a GMO or a processed food. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that, um, because that's a, that's a big one that's coming to the forefront. You know, we have these peaks, these cycles that come through, and, and that's a big one right now. Now, um, I know a lot of people do this, and I know you know this too. They will... They will get the. They will go to McDonald's. Sorry, McDonald's, I'm using you, but you're the most prevalent around the world. They will go to McDonald's. They'll get their meal, and then they'll get a large diet soda. And they say, "Well, you know, I've got this meal, but look, I'm drinking a diet soda, or you know, we'll have a salad and a diet soda." I can't stand diet soda. I think they should be outlawed. Um, what do you? <laughs> what, <laughs> I'm I'm being a little cynical here, but do you think that diet sodas are a contributing factor, or for that matter, diet or just soda, period, do you think it's a contributing factor to the um, obesity that people are experiencing? Regular sodas, sodas, absolutely. Diet sodas, no. And I know that I'm a little bit controversial on my view of diet soda. Um, in my, at least in my practice, 19 out of 20 people will experience a calming of their sweet tooth and their sweet cravings by drinking diet soda. The one out of 20 will drink a diet soda and then get cravings for real sugary foods. Mm-hmm. That one out of 20, I say, avoid diet sodas. The other ones, I say, your chances of dying from being obese and having diabetes and heart disease are a million times greater than your chances of dying from getting some sort of weird cancer by drinking a few diet sodas every day. Again, real world versus fantasy land. In the mm-hmm. real world, whatever you need to do to maintain a healthy weight and calm your sweet tooth is more desirable than eating tons of extra food and carrying around too much body weight. I, having struggled with obesity for most of my life, um, I know that a diet soda will calm my sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm not a lab rat and I'm not drinking the equivalent of 5,000 of them per day. So my chances of having any problems are less than my chances of having issues from diabetes and heart disease from trying to drink only water for three days and then eating six pints of Ben and Jerry's because I feel so deprived. <laughs> you 
had to go to the Ben and Jerry's. You had to bring that in. <laughs> and actually, the thing you mentioned about the the, the the value meal and the Diet Coke, it's a medical term called the Big Mac and Diet Coke syndrome. And a, a lot of the studies uh, that connect diet sodas with, pe- with being overweight are relational studies. They're not causative, meaning that because people who are overweight drink diet sodas doesn't mean it's the diet sodas causing them to be overweight. And when you pick apart those studies and look at them, despite what the media says, you'll see that it's not the diet sodas causing the weight gain. It's the people who are overweight tend to drink more diet sodas, and that's probably right. because of the Big Mac and Diet Coke syndrome, which is where you say, well, I got a Diet Coke so I can eat a Big Mac, or I mm-hmm. just ran a mile or walked a mile and a half or exercised for a half hour. Now I can go eat cupcakes. It doesn't work like right. that. You can't outrun a bad nutrition plan. You can't exer- out-exercise a poor diet, is the saying in the fitness world. Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. And and great segue into the whole thing about exercise um, and, and fitness. What do you say to people um, with regards to helping them get moving, helping them, you know, because you, you have to move. It, it, it's, uh, there's no, there's no, there's nothing around that. You have to move. You have to physically get your heart rate up, and you have to physically get that metabolic rate up so you're burning calories. And the best way to do that is exercise. What do you say to people that um, struggle with that? Well, I tell them that resistance training is the most effective way um, over the long run to maintain a healthy weight, but that's also the most scary for people and the most foreign. When people are better at something, they tend to enjoy it more, and weight training is no exception. Like when someone goes and plays golf, by getting lessons, by learning how to do it properly, it will be more fun for them to play golf than if they just went out and hacked it around every once in a while. Similarly, with weight training or resistance training or exercise in general, if you learn how to do it right from the start and become skilled in it, it's going to be more fun and you're going to enjoy more beneficial effects from it. So while people, women especially, go into the gym and they look at the giant weight section and then they jump on the treadmill and walk and are are, are disappointed in their results, by learning how to weight train um, properly, either using a personal trainer or somebody um, who knows about a physical therapist or even a friend, although I hesitate to even say that because most people don't lift properly, um, Mm -hmm. they'll start to enjoy it and they'll start to see changes in their body that will occur much faster than by just doing some low-intensity cardio, which is not the best way to burn fat or change your body. So I would say uh, learn how to exercise properly and that will make your chances of enjoying it and thus sticking with it much greater. But in the end, you just got to do something. But plugging away on a treadmill day after day becomes very, very boring and is very difficult to maintain, whereas somebody who learns how to weight train and is seeing changes in their body for the positive and an increase in strength are a lot more likely to stay with it. And as an indirect effect, it also makes it a lot easier to push away from a cheeseburger than if you're not seeing changes in your body. Yes, I I, I agree with you. I can um, definitely, uh, definitely attest to that. I was a track and field athlete and um and you know many years ago and had you know totally stopped exercise well to that you know to that intensity however about 15 years ago I decided I needed to go back you know and get my exercise ready you know just so I could feel healthy I knew my family genetics with regards to health care you know health and well-being and I didn't want to 
be a victim to, quote, unquote, the genetic syndrome. So <clears throat> went back to the gym, really was really interested in weight. Now I was always a skinny kid. So when I was running track and field, I wasn't, I was doing it, but I was doing it because it was part of my program. However, you know, when I went back to the gym, I wanted to learn how to, you know, lift weights. And I, I did. I got a personal trainer, and that trainer showed me around the gym. I kept her for like six months, and I really did see the results that um, that I was looking for. Now, when I went, she said, "You don't need you don't need a trainer. You don't need to work out. You look great." And I said, "Yeah, I, I do, but for, for for my overall health and sustainability of my well being, I need to work out." What was phenomenal was once I started seeing the the results. I uh, loved being in the weight room. It was just, I wasn't intimidated. I put my headphones on, and I love working out with the guys. There's just something about that testosterone that circulates around the gym, you know, that I just got picked up on their energy. And it's amazing, amazing that, you know, what you just said is all, I can just validate all of that. You know, you start seeing the changes in your muscles that you didn't know popping out. You know, you start you know, seeing the fat loss, or, you know, cellulite, and um, people start complimenting, you know, how well you look, you know, you look so fit, and and it really does sort of stroke your ego to keep you going because it's something you like to do. You're seeing the results quickly, and, and it's not so tenuous, but what's what was really amazing to me was I was sitting, um, you know, doing my cardio warm-up, so to speak, and I saw this elderly lady, and this lady had to be at least 75, and I said, oh, my goodness, this is beautiful because she was doing strength training, meaning she was pumping iron in the weight room with the guys, and I'm like, that's how I want to be when I get to that age because it doesn't matter how old you are. It's just a matter of doing what you can do at that level that's right for you and just keep on doing it. And so thank you so much for sharing that because um, that it's, it's phenomenal to see when you – when you start seeing the results, you want to keep going, and you do pay more attention to what you're putting into your body. So it's it's a win-win, you guys out there. Um, he's absolutely right. Now, you know, we've heard a lot about that wonderful, beautiful cortisol that, um, you know, comes from when we're totally stressed out, which most people are stressed out 24-7 hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they don't even realize it because they've been operating that way for so long. Um, can you just talk about what that role, what the cortisol and its role plays in how uh, we gain that abdominal weight? And, mm-hmm. and, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so cortisol by itself is called a catabolic hormone, meaning it causes the breakdown of fat and muscle. So as a direct effect, cortisol does not cause weight gain. For instance, if you were to lock somebody up in a room and give them cortisol pills, they would lose weight. However, cortisol acts as a potent appetite stimulant. So get all other things being equal, in the settings of elevated cortisol, a person will overeat. And when somebody does consume excess calories in the setting of high cortisol, that weight becomes distributed around the belly. So it's not a direct effect of cortisol causing weight gain. It's the indirect effect of the appetite increase by cortisol, which is one of the many reasons chronic stress is a bad thing. Mm. So commercials like for lipozine or whatever they might be. Yes, I'm sorry I was going to call, mention yeah. that. Sorry to call yeah, them out, yeah. but I am because I think that what, what they're doing is irresponsible. Um, to say that you can target cortisol and target abdominal fat is not is mostly inaccurate. There's no way to spot reduce. 
Um, and if you do have abdominal fat from elevated cortisol levels, by lowering the cortisol levels, the abdominal fat's not going to disappear. It's going to keep you from overeating, but you're still going to need to engage in an effective exercise and nutrition program in order to lose that abdominal fat. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that because that's a big one, and you do see those commercials on TV. And, um, you know, I know it's a bunch of hooli, but hooli balooey, but, um, you know, they're obviously they're getting a ton of business because they're able to run these commercials and, and they're making a ton of money and people buying into the fact that I can take this pill and I'm I'm going to lose my belly fat. I don't have to watch what I eat. I don't have to exercise. Right. I don't have to do anything that's good for my body but take this pill because it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill the cortisol that's actually contributing to my belly fat. Right. And, uh, and that's not true. That really is not true. I also want to ask you, what role does um, hormone imbalance play in weight gain? Well, we, we see it in menopause um, where the, a drop in hormones can contribute to weight gain, mostly through its effect on metabolic slowdown and a redistribution of body fat. Um, people who are estrogen dominant, meaning they have too much estrogen for the amount of progesterone they have, can also have uh, a predisposition to storing belly fat. Men, uh, in particular with low testosterone, will store fat around their belly, and we know that testosterone replacement therapy is a helpful way of getting belly fat down, again, when used as part of a proper nutrition and exercise program. Uh, thyroid disease, either overt thyroid um, illness, like clinically diagnosed hypothyroidism, um, can cause a metabolic slowdown, which can then predispose somebody to gaining weight, even if they're eating the same amount they had been eating before. Um, but also... Uh, Thyroid hormone resistance, which is an alternative medicine concept, which basically describes that there is enough thyroid hormone floating around, but too much of something called reverse T3, which is a thyroid blocking hormone, um, which basically mm-hmm. sits on the thyroid receptor and blocks its action. Now, this is admittedly alternative medicine concepts. A traditional endocrinologist or primary care doctor will say that this is voodoo, but I've read the research, I've looked at it myself, and it does appear to be the case. Um, in addition, thyroid hormone that's made from the thyroid gland is inactive. It needs to be converted to an active uh, form, and people who carry excess body weight will release chemicals from their body fat, which will block the conversion of inactive to active thyroid hormone, um, which can help uh, or which can hurt a weight loss uh, attempt. And I see it in my practice a lot where people are following a very healthy nutrition plan, exercising regularly, and they're not losing any weight. And when we go back and look at their thyroid numbers, they're not optimal. And there's a difference between normal and optimal. Again, alternative mm-hmm. medicine concepts. Um, but certainly something that needs to be looked at as, as an overall picture. Uh, for most people, it's not an issue. But if we pick it up one out of every ten times, that one person is going to be a lot better off from knowing it and being treated for it rather than just assuming that everybody who comes in is overweight because they eat too much. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good information. Uh, very good. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I just want we we're we're getting so close to our time with you, but I wonder if you could just touch real briefly on the newly FDA approved weight loss drugs, um, Belvic. Belvic and, and Kusimia. Yes. So Belvic is the next generation of fenfluramine. We remember that from the fenfen fiasco. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Fenfluramine, which is the 
drug that Bellevue came from um, binds to serotonin receptors. And serotonin receptors in the brain are responsible for appetite suppression and thus weight loss. The problem is there's also serotonin receptors on the heart valves and fenfluramine not only bound to the ones in the brain, but also to the ones on the heart valves, which caused valvular abnormalities. Um, and there's also primary pulmonary hypertension, which is a very serious pulmonary abnormality that was connected with fenfluramine. The newest generation, Belvique, is not supposed to bind to the receptors um, in the heart and is only supposed to act selectively on the ones in the brain. I am not personally going to use that drug because it's too new. When we have alternatives that have been around for 40, 50, 60 years that we know are safe, um, I hesitate to use a drug that's supposed to be safe because fenformine was supposed to be safe until it turned out it wasn't. Mm, yeah. Uh, the I other drug... That. The other drug, Qsimia, is just a combination of fentramine, which is a very, very effective and safe appetite suppressant, as well as Topamax, which was traditionally an anti-seizure drug, which is now used mostly for migraines and chronic pain, which has potent um, weight loss effects, mostly through its ability to moderate binge eating behavior. So Qsimia is a patented drug with fixed ratios of Topamax and Phentermine, or actually Topiramate is the generic form of Topamax um, and Phentermine. Um, and it works nicely, but a lot of times we can get away with using one drug, and I would always rather use one drug than two drugs. Mm. But often, and the other advantage of using the drug separately is you can titrate the, or adjust the individual doses um, uh, doses of each one without having to change both of them, which you would run into when you're using Kisimia. Mm. Not that it's not an effective drug. I just think that there's better ways of doing it, basically using the separate drugs and looking at the doses individually based on the response. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of these two drugs. Um, so it was it was quite interesting to see that um, the Belvic is a, a derivative, I want to say, if, for lack of words, of uh, quote unquote finfin, I, I was I was a practicing nurse in the ER when finfin was running rampant, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and and did see uh, people come in with cardiac problems, mm -hmm. um, you know, resulting from finfin after they did kind of put the two together. But right. yeah, thank you for sharing that information. So as we close up today with Dr. Charlie Seltzer. I want to know, is there anything that you want to say, anything that, any last words you want to bestow upon the listeners to help them not stress out about maintaining their weight, but to catapult them forward in a positive manner? Um, the, the, the floor is yours. <laughs> if it looks too good to be true, it is. And losing weight or maintaining a healthy weight requires work and a lifestyle modification, and there's no exception to that statement. I keep a really helpful, or at least what I think is a helpful blog on my website, LimitlessLongevity.com. Um, it's free, and it has a nice mix of philosophical, psychological um, articles, as well as some specific examples of how somebody can make changes to live a healthier lifestyle. Thank you. And again, can you mention the website, and, sure. and just in case people want to reach out and touch you, um, how they could do that? Sure. Um, the website is limitlesslongevity.com. Um, I'm in the Philadelphia area, but I have patients all over the country that I see either via Skype or by Google+. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at drcharlies, and my Facebook fan page is facebook.com backslash drseltzer. Um, well, thank anyone you. Can, can call me. Uh, the office number is printed on the website. You can feel free to email me um, or any way you want to get in touch with me. I'm very available. 
Thank you, Charlie. I'm sorry. That's too um, too personal. Thank no, you, No, no, no. Actually, I actually like Charlie. Very, very few people call me doctor. Everybody knows it. It says it on the door. Oh, I know when we were corresponding, you're like, you know, just call me Charlie. And I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, from the old school. You're yeah, a doctor. Everybody does. Everybody does. <laughs> Thank you so much for bestowing this wonderful information about a very, very important subject um, that is really, really uh, stressing a lot of us out even more, as well as, you know, causing uh, chaotic havoc on our health and well-being. Um, I really do appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're a busy gentleman, and, um, you know, we've taken you away from your time that you, you have with your patients. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And you guys out there listening, I hope you were able to take notes with regards to what he said. A lot of profound information here, not difficult, but definitely something that you need to pay attention to because if you pick up one or two or or maybe everything that he said, I guarantee you that your way you manage and maintain your weight will improve. And, of course, you can always reach out to him if you want to seek his help because that's what he does. He is an expert. He is the expert in this field. So if you're having issues, please reach out and, and contact Dr. Charlie Seltzer, and I will definitely have all his information on the website for you uh, so you can connect with him either way. Okay? Now, as always, I love having you guys listen to the show, and I so appreciate you. Without you, there would not be me or this show. And um, I'm going to close for the day and wish you a fabulous week. I uh, hope you have a phenomenal, phenomenal path ahead of you with regards to successfully maintaining your weight. And as always, I want to wish you peace to your mind, wellness to your body, and tranquility to your spirit. Until next week, be well and uh be successful, and make your choices with what you eat wisely. Take good care. This is Rochelle Lawson, the queen of feeling fabulous, and you have been listening to Blissful Living. Bye for now. You can find out more about Rochelle on her website, Rochelle Lawson, R-O-C-H-E-L-E, Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N, or at healthhealingwellness.com. Or just click on her websites from the webtalkradio.net page right in front of you. And of course, you'll want to come right back here next week for another episode of Blissful Living. Thanks for joining us.